We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week. ICRT's roundup of the top news stories from around Taiwan. Today we'll be covering the last seven days. I'm Keith Manconi of ICRT News. Joining me in studio today, as always, is Gavin Phipps, also of ICRT News. Good evening. Like a well-tuned instrument, always right in sync. And in studio with us today as well is Brian Hugh of New Bloom Magazine. Welcome to you. Thanks for having me. And by phone, uh, we are happy to invite back onto the program once again, Chay Ting-Yeh of Katagalan Media. Uh, good evening. I would have called it a rusty cog. A rusty cog, yeah. Just, just one lone cog, not even a whole machine. Okay. One lone cog is what we are today. But uh, let's uh, actually move to what we're going to be talking about today, which is Donald Trump. Once again, Donald Trump is bound for the White House, meaning he will be setting U.S. foreign policy for at least the next four years, meaning... Taiwan and Taiwan watchers are going to need to take a hard look at exactly what he and his policy team are cooking up for the future. Uh, Of course, we devoted our whole show last week to U.S.-Taiwan ties, but uh, I think it would be fair to say that we made the same bad assumptions everyone else did about who was likely to win. So uh, now that the results are in, uh, we should probably revisit this topic uh, and think through some of the possibilities that, uh, you know, now we need to take very seriously. So, that is the first half of the show. Then in the second half, we will be heading back to our regular scheduled program. Uh, and we've got four stories to cover over the past seven days. The tussle over the work week and national holidays got more heated and more hungry with activists beginning hunger strikes. Uh, Beijing is seeking to block two Hong Kong pro-independence lawmakers from taking office. This is uh, a story that has also gotten international headlines. The DPP is chiming in on it, so there's a little bit of a Taiwan angle there now. The legal slugfest over the KMT's party assets continues, and marriage equality took one more tiny step towards passage. So a whole lot of stuff there to cover in the second half. But the whole first half, as I've said, we will be revisiting the topic of U.S. politics and what the fast-approaching ascension of Donald Trump to the country's highest office could mean for Taiwan. To start this one off, uh, let's begin with what folks here in Taiwan have had to say about it, uh, because there have been a number of public statements, including from the presidential office. Gavin? But yes, the government congratulated Republican candidate Donald Trump on winning the U.S. presidential election hours after it was announced that he'd won. And in a statement issued by the presidential office, President Tsai Ing-wen described the United States as being Taiwan's most solid international partner and said that her administration looks forward to cooperating further with the new United States government. Hmm. And the statement went on to say that the Tsai administration will seek to continue to improve Taiwan-U.S. relations so that it becomes an important cornerstone for maintaining peace and stability in the Asia-Pacific region. All right. That was the presidential statement. Kind of congratulatory, conciliatory tone that she's striking right there. The Premier came out and said that existing cooperation exchange programs between Taiwan and the United States will remain unchanged, and Taiwan and the United States will also continue to discuss the signing of free trade and economic agreements. The Ministry of National Defence came out with a very brief statement that basically said... Military exchanges are continuing as normal. Mm -hmm. Anybody else I should be talking about here? 
Oh, oh yes, and Foreign Minister David Lee, of course, came out after he was forced to come out earlier this week on Thursday, and he admitted, or he revealed, shall we say, that President Tsai Ing-wen met with a top aide to Donald Trump during his visit to Taiwan several weeks ago. And while David Lee, the Foreign Minister, refused to name the Trump official that President Tsai Ing-wen met with, the presidential office came out hours later and named him as Edwin Fulner. He is the founder of the Heritage Foundation think tank. All right, and that's significant because, as a lot of uh, policy wonks in Taiwan, cross-strait observers have uh, been observing. You know uh, that sort of class of people. They actually knew the Hillary team pretty well. They knew what to expect from them. They had a good sense of what uh, the Hillary team's uh, cross-strait policy would have been. Trump is more of a giant unknown uh, to this group of people in Taiwan. They don't really uh, know who his people are going to be. They don't necessarily know what they're thinking in terms of cross-strait relations. So the Tsai administration affirming that they have had contact with the Trump team even before the election took place. Yeah, apparently they've had, obviously, this was this meeting with Tsai Ing-wen and Fulner took place on October the 13th in Taipei. Mm-hmm. And apparently the government says that the top U.S., the top envoy from Taiwan to the U.S., Stanley Gao, had had previous talks with the Trump campaign people, as well as the, obviously, the Clinton campaign people, but they stressed that he had had talks with the Trump campaign people in the past and in the run-up to the election, and he is now expected to hold talks with members of Trump's transition team sometime in the coming days or weeks. There we go. All right. So that gives a sense of what uh, has been coming out of officialdom here in Taiwan. Uh, I thought, though, that we should get the view from Washington on this as well. And to get that perspective into the mix, uh, I called up Michael O'Hanlon. He's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution who has written on U.S.-Taiwan-China ties uh, in the past for a number of years, longtime observer of the region. So here's the conversation I had with him earlier today. Michael O'Hanlon, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So just to uh, start things off, I wanted to start with an opinion piece uh, that came out in the Wall Street Journal that you wrote earlier this year, uh, warning of some of the consequences that uh, the Trump presidency could have for Taiwan specifically. Uh, you took uh, as your jumping off point comments that Trump made uh, even earlier in the year uh, about Japan and South Korea uh, and nuclear weapons uh, that alarmed many. Uh, so just to get things going, let's actually listen to that. This is a clip from an interview with Anderson Cooper uh, with Trump earlier this year. At some point, we have to say, you know what? We're better off if Japan protects itself against this maniac in North Korea. We're better off, frankly, if South Korea is going to start to protect itself. Saudi Arabia we nuclear have to, weapons? Saudi Arabia, absolutely. You would be making, fine with them having nuclear weapons? No, not nuclear no, weapons, okay. but they have to protect themselves. But if you say to Japan, yes, it's fine, you get nuclear weapons, South Korea, you as well, and Saudi Arabia says we Can want I, them. Can I be honest with you? It's going to happen anyway. It's going to happen anyway. It's it's only a question of time. Tell us a little bit. I mean, he's talking there about uh, South Korea and Japan. Tell us uh, how you get from there to concerns about Taiwan. Well, Donald Trump has essentially said that he's not persuaded we should stand by many of our alliance commitments, especially in cases where an ally may not be doing as much as he deems uh, the appropriate amount uh, by way of burden sharing, you know, and, and bearing its own fraction of a reasonable allocation of defense costs. And with Taiwan, even in the absence of specificity from him about most aspects of his thinking, Taiwan's a country that's gradually let its defense budget slip a bit as percent of GDP. And it's now in the range of 2%. 
that's um, that's okay compared to most American allies, but you could argue that Taiwan ought to be a little more worried than most American friends. And of course, it's not even a formal ally or formally recognized by the United States. But given its proximity to China, its um, its vulnerability to China, the absence of a you know of, of a higher level of defense spending could be taken as grounds to to deem it in you know inadequately committed to its own defense and it's entirely conceivable that Trump could be therefore uh, willing to to say that it's a it's a friend that's not doing enough and therefore America's commitment to Taiwan would be shaky and of course as you know the American security commitment to Taiwan is already deliberately ambiguous as a matter of policy going back to the late 1970s and early 1980s so if you combine that with Trump's overall worldview about how to, uh, you know, how to try to uh, incentivize allies to do more for their own protection, their own self-protection, uh, then this could be foreboding for Taiwan. This could be a real serious concern, and it could be misinterpreted by China as uh, an implication that a President Trump really wouldn't stand by Taiwan. So I'm certainly, yes, still concerned. Now, Trump could do a lot to clear up my concern and, and the confusion uh, with various kinds of concrete statements. But, uh, of course, he's not yet president and he hasn't done that yet. Right. Um, let's uh, look at one of the not quite a concrete statement, but a, a little piece of news that came out uh, yesterday. South Korea is now claiming that they had a phone call with uh, Trump in which he pledged to continue uh, the commitment to defending South Korea. Uh, they're basically saying, you know, there was a productive phone call. They're hearing the things that they want to hear. Uh, is stuff like that heartening or, or is it really too early to say uh, whether or not that means anything? Well, uh, no, I think he actually can reassure a lot of people with fairly simple statements at this point. Uh, I have not yet seen this discussion in the American media. It's pretty important that everybody hear him clarify his position because it doesn't do a whole lot of good if Seoul expects uh, U.S. help, but North Korea hasn't gotten the message. And so it's going to be pretty important to clarify this for the general well-being of the entire region that, in fact, the U.S. commitment to uh, Korea is ironclad and and uh, will be sustained in a Trump presidency. Uh, so, you know, a phone conversation that happens in private that the South Koreans later report back on selectively to their own media, that's not really good enough. But it's certainly a step in the right direction. And so uh, this is the kind of thing that I believe Trump could employ to fairly easily uh, address some of the concerns he's created. The question really is going to be, does he want to? Uh, there may be situations where he actually prefers to keep a little bit of the fear of God in the minds of certain allies, or where he feels that changing his position too quickly could indicate that he was never serious in the first place and that he's not really, you know, um, standing by his campaign promises, and he doesn't want to necessarily quickly do that either. So he's going he's gonna to have to think this through step by step. I, I would like to see him uh, shore up. U.S. commitments to these various allies, but I'm just not persuaded he's really going to do it. Let's flesh out a couple of the other uh, scenarios that some folks are worried about, uh, commentators in Taiwan, commentators in the U.S. Uh, in your article, uh, an- another scenario that you kind of uh, highlighted was perhaps the U.S. pulls out of Japan, doesn't have the resources in Japan anymore. Even if the U.S. perhaps was still maintaining a commitment to Taiwan, that commitment wouldn't be taken very seriously if its assets were moved out of the region, and this might encourage Taiwan to take moves to defend itself, which you said... Uh, could be somewhat destabilizing. So uh, tell, uh, uh, is, is that still a concern for you? Is that a scenario that you still think is a possibility? 
Well, um, I certainly think that uh, right now there's a, a huge amount of uncertainty about which American commitments are robust. And therefore, I think everything is essentially in play. You know, it, it, to, be, uh, to be honest with you, I'm not going to spend a lot of time looking backward and parsing every word that Trump said on each country during the campaign, because I don't really think that's the point. The point is that he deliberately created ambiguity and confusion about America's overall commitment to its overseas allies. And now we're going to have to watch as the president-elect and then, you know, on January 20th and thereafter the president then decides uh, what new things to say. And uh, so he's not going to be able to quickly duck this issue just because on a given case or a given country, um, his words were not all that, you know, threatening. If, if the overall set of statements that he made in the campaign is viewed as a whole, then he has called into doubt our commitment to virtually all allies. And I think he's going to have to, therefore, uh, really, you know, rethink this pretty quickly and decide are there any countries where he really wants to make the U.S. security commitment conditional or withdraw it? And if so, what are the criteria by which he will decide and how fast will he decide? And not just you and I and a couple of people reading a certain newspaper in South Korea, but the entire region needs to know, the entire world needs to know loud and clear. So, um, uh, yeah, I think a number of these kinds of hypothetical scenarios where an aggressor attacks an American friend because of doubt about the U.S. commitment to come through for them. I think a lot of these are now concerns, and I'm particularly worried about Taiwan and South Korea in the Asia-Pacific region. Now, I'm curious to get your view from, you know, Washington, D.C., because there are some countervailing forces to the Trump presidency. Of course, a lot of people are pointing out uh, that the Republicans have been uh, traditionally very supportive of Taiwan uh, and, uh, you know, a, a majority Republican Congress, a majority Republican Senate. Uh, and, you know, a, a White House staffed by folks that uh, are, are from that sort of worldview uh, that has traditionally supported Taiwan could potentially, uh, you know, lead Trump in, in a more traditionally Republican foreign policy direction. Uh, do you think, I mean, uh, based on what you're saying, it just sounds like it's, it's really too early to tell how that's going to go. Is that how you're feeling? Yeah. Uh, it, it's definitely too soon to know. And even if we start to get greater clarity on who's going to be his secretary of defense or who's going to be a secretary of state in the next little bit, it'll still be too early to know. We'll maybe start to get a little bit of greater clarity. Uh, and, you know, if, if he chose Steve Hadley to be secretary of state or something like that, then, then that does begin to be moderately reassuring. But if he has a couple of people who have been out of the debate or out of government for a while and may have you know, uh, more um, uh, more extreme views or views that are less within the mainstream, we're really going to have to still doubt just where Trump would go. So, you know, if it's Newt Gingrich or Rudy Giuliani or someone like that, that's still not going to be a great uh, clarifier. We're going to have to hear from the president himself about specific countries, specific commitments. And some of this can be done now uh, before he's even inaugurated. In fact, I hope a good deal of it will be, but he may not choose to clarify everything in the next two months. Mm. One argument that I've heard from a number of people, uh, a little counterintuitive, is that perhaps 
one of the asks that Taiwan has is, of course, weapon sales uh, from the U.S. Uh, many feel that those uh, sales have uh, not been as brisk as they would have liked to see over the last couple of years, although, of course, that's uh, somewhat contested. Uh, and some people are saying, well, if Donald Trump is asking these countries to defend themselves, this might bode well for weapon sales to Taiwan. Uh, or uh, an, another kind of uh, notch in favor of that would be the fact that uh, the Republicans, uh, their platform this year actually included sale of submarine technology to Taiwan. Uh, so, you know, if if the Republicans that put that in the platform, if they hold sway, perhaps that could mean uh, more cooperation on the sale of arms between Taiwan and the U.S. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that's I think that's all very plausible because, you know, certainly it looks like Trump is not all that. Uh, friendly in his initial thinking towards China um, on a number of fronts, certainly trade, uh, perhaps security policy. And so we can already discern a little bit of uh, of a tendency or an inclination to be fairly tough on this relationship. On top of that, as you point out, uh, you've got the uh, convention and platform language, which Trump was in a position to influence. Although I think, you know, you could also argue that submarine technology transfer is already essentially American policy because the Obama administration has been trying to make it happen with, you know, a submarine sale. Uh, and e- whether or not it was going to be American technology, it was certainly going to be Western technology, and we were in favor of that. So there's nothing too radical or uh, path-breaking about this particular platform statement. But, um, yeah, I think that it's, it's fair to say that the logic of selling more weapons would fit with Trump's worldview doesn't mean that he'll do it. And again, you and I are, like many others these days, spending a lot of time speculating on issues that we will have to wait for real answers to um, in coming weeks and months. But but it certainly passes the plausibility test that more arms sales to Taiwan would fit with Trump's worldview. And just looking at this from the perspective of Taiwan's government, um, you know, I've heard a number of commentators in Taiwan uh, talk over the last couple of days that they really knew what to expect from a Hillary administration. They knew the people that were going there. They had worked with them before. They just don't know what to expect from a Donald Trump administration. It's all, as you say, very uncertain, uncharted territory. What are the sorts of things that uh, you expect them to do or that they could do over the next couple of months to prepare for a Donald Trump administration? Uh, and what should they be looking for, either from the U.S. or from China, to get some sense of uh, what's coming? You know, it's a hard question because I, if you try too hard, you may not have the effect you're trying to achieve. It's not like there's some hidden book of secrets that would reveal all of Trump's thinking if somehow you could access it or if somehow you could have the right meeting with the right close advisor that all of a sudden your doubts and your uncertainties could be resolved. Right now, these doubts and uncertainties are, are intrinsic to the candidate or the president-elect himself. He hasn't decided yet, I'm sure, what to do about a lot of these things. And, um, you know, he's probably really just coming to grips with the idea that he's going to be president at this point, which has got to be a shock in and of itself. And, uh, and so... Um, I don't know what I would try to do as a regional country. It's worth having a lot of dialogues. It's, it's worth trying to access various people who might be close to Trump. But if people push too hard for answers, they could almost prejudge some of the decisions in the wrong way. And in other words, maybe it's better to let uh, Trump figure out who his advisors are, who he's going to trust. And, um, you know, I guess the one thing I would say is, is really don't rush it. And don't assume that he's going to be as radical as president that, as he has been as a candidate. 
you know, it's maybe that's slight solace to a country whose security feels like it's in jeopardy because of the outcome of the American election. But, um, you know, that's that's somehow inherent to the fact that we just elected this novice uh, and this populist as uh, the leader of the free world. And I'm afraid we're going to have to all adjust to that now. And, and you know, uh, it's worth quietly and calmly making the case for why continued American engagement is is good uh, and desired and stabilizing and maybe even advantageous to the United States as well. But if you try to push that argument too hard, you may actually encounter um, a negative reaction, almost an allergic reaction that tilts things in the other direction from what you would hope. So, um, you know, we're all going to have a, a little bit of a of an anxious next few months. So we better get used to it. Once again, that was Michael O'Hanlon, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Uh, Something we should probably add to the conversation uh, today is uh, this idea that Trump has put forward that we discussed there that uh, U.S. allies are not doing enough to provide their own military support to, you know, provide for their own defenses. That's not an entirely new idea. You know, I've been to defense conferences before where Folks from both sides of the political divide in the U.S. have talked about, uh, you know, NATO allies. They should be doing more. They should be spending more of their GDP on defense. Uh, so that that in itself is not really what's new here. What's new here is Trump making uh, it, it, it very clear in those statements that uh, support from the U.S. would be conditional upon that sort of uh, military spending. Uh, and, you know, footing the bill in that way. So that that is very new. And whether or not that really translates into concrete policy actions, it does send signals to the rest of the world that, you know, they are free to interpret in whatever way they want. So that's kind of just to give some context on that front. Uh, let's toss things over to Ting. And uh, I, I don't really have even have a question here. Uh, what do you what what's on your mind this week watching all this? So, I mean, just just on a personal level, it's still, you know, even after several days is still sort of a big shock to to me. Um, and I think one of the many things that I, that's been going on in my mind is, um, you know, we're talking about how everybody's sort of got it wrong, right? And the question is, well, who is everybody, right? And now, every, you know, we're, we're trying to ask this question of who are these people that voted for Trump that did not show up in the polls or that did not show up in predictions or that, um, you know, sort of the the established, you know, media pundits or commentators have basically not been able to consider, I guess. I don't know. And, and sort of that plus the fact that, um, you know, we, we see this trend around the world where we have uh, the Duarte in the Philippines, you have, um, you know, the Brexit vote, you have, um, you know, the rise of uh, far-right nationalistic parties in you know, places like Denmark and France and uh, many other places. And, you know, I think there's definitely a global trend of anger and backlash against, uh, you know, globalized capitalism. You know, I think what is ironic is that um, this sort of, uh, you know, globalized capitalism was basically set up, um, you know, it's sort of wrapped as a right, you know, conservative, um, you know, ideas, you know, deregulated, you know, and globalized um, democ- uh, capitalism, yet... Um, people are sort of flocking to even more far-right uh, politicians and, and ideologies to kind of, you know, say, you know what, you know, we don't really want to be so, I guess you're not really, people are not really saying we don't want to be so interconnected, but it's, you know, I, I, I want to say it's the people that have been 
either left out or the people that felt that the system is beginning to be rigged against them. And I think you can see some of this in Taiwan as well. Um, you know, some of the protests, you know, some of the labor protests and some of the, um, you know, agricultural protests against, you know, big corporations, you know, and Brian being, you know, often at the scene of these protests could tell you a lot more about the sentiments that these people have, right? It's, and I'm guessing it's the sentiment of the systems that are in place are just not working for a lot of these people. <clears throat> and so, you know, what can you do other than protest and vote in sort of a protest candidate for president and just, you know, seeing if some change or any sort of change could be better than what we have today. I think that's something that Taiwanese people kind of should think about in the sense that using the sort of the Trump example as sort of a symbolism, right, as sort of a, as sort of a, as a symptom of something that's going on around the world, right, which is this sort of greater divide between the people that benefit from globalization and the people that don't, right? And um, unfortunately, I think that the people that don't benefit from globalization are looking for more, either you want to call them radical or extreme or just, you know, plain different way of doing things. And I think in any case, we're going into a much more unknown time for the world as a whole. Mm. And it's interesting that you say that because Mayor Ko Wenzhou actually got asked a question yesterday where he was asked, uh, are you the Donald or is Donald Trump the you of America? Basically, their implication being, uh, he, you know, he's an outsider candidate. He has had his personality issues uh, in the mainstream media. Ko Wenzhou said, no, 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 no. The parallels don't really go that far. But uh, the question was certainly posed. Uh, Brian, I guess uh, let's stay on this topic a little bit. Uh, it's it's an interesting uh, thought that Ting has put forward there. Uh, in some ways, though, it almost feels like Taiwan uh, doesn't is is almost impervious to this sort of thing, or at least it would it would look very different just because the the political divide uh, is so much different in Taiwan. Uh, how, do you see any kind of uh, Trumpism or uh, you know populism, anti-globalism uh, going on in Taiwan, and and what does that end up looking like here? Um, it's funny because you know people like to joke that what if this is like Hong Xiuju becoming the president? Um, the paradox is that you know Hong Xiuju has an experience in politics, and you know is as a woman politician probably would have you know less sexist policies. Um, but you know there are these kind of responses to you know dissatisfaction with the status quo, and this is maybe you know. This may be what the Thai administration has the possibility of facing down the line, you know, with the Obama administration being a center-left administration, now a Republican administration in power. So, you know, what about next time? Um, I mean, just the KMT, however, doesn't seem like it's going to put forth anybody of, mm -hmm. with any appeal, you know. Well, it's, it's almost uh, a, a more extreme case because neither party really has a long-term record of uh, representing the working class in Taiwan. I mean, maybe opportunistically, but not as like a central plank. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Um, so, I mean, we'll see down the line. I mean, I just, but the thing is, because of, you know, unification and independence politics, the kind of left-right spectrums align onto those kind of unevenly. So, mm -hmm. you know, the DPP, which is, well, you know, sort of kind of pro-independence, is the center-left party, and the KMT, which is, you know, pro-unification, is the center-right party. So, you know, a form of right-wing populism will have to go hand-in-hand in hand with pro-unification sentiment. So that is not probably not going to happen. So, you know, that's sort of why I kind of don't see this happening in Taiwan. Mm, yeah, the politics breaks down very differently.
I guess we shall see when the Taipei City mayoral elections happen again, won't we? And if Dr. Kerr runs again, will he win again? Hmm. Yeah, he might be the vanguard of the outsiders. I personally, he's taken a lot of flack, Kerr, because of course he doesn't belong to any one political party. And I think that's the reason he's taken flack, because he doesn't belong to one political party. Mm-hmm. Similar to Trump, I mean, he also just kind of idiosyncratically switches positions sometimes. And he also just, you know, mixes together positions in a way that people are not used to. I think that's another re- reason for backlash against him. Hmm. Another interesting point that uh, some in Taiwan have pointed out is uh, Trump's ascension could have really profound implications for uh, Taiwan's economy. Uh, You know, again, it's not clear if his campaign rhetoric is going to translate into concrete policy. But if it does, you know, he's threatening a trade war with China, more or less. uh, And if that sort of trade policy is carried to its logical conclusion... Uh, And, you know, given Taiwan being the export-driven economy that it is and the U.S. being one of its main export markets, uh, that could be very damaging for Taiwan's exports uh, as well. Oh, this was the move to get Apple supply companies to open factories in America. Mm. Of course, yeah. That <laughs> yeah, was, that was the plan. Yeah, basically, or the, the plan that is the premise that people are putting forward. Basically, lots of Taiwan companies, Honhai Precision Industry, several other chip manufacturers, etc., make parts for Apple iPhones mm-hmm. and Apple iPods, iPads, and iPods. Possibly, I, there's too many of them. Pods, pads, pids, pods. <laughs> they make things for them. And apparently, there's there was a report this week here in Taiwan that there was concern that Donald Trump's administration could insist that any company in the Apple supply chain actually open a facility in the United States if it wished to continue to provide Apple with parts for its electronic devices. Um, I mean, returning to what Ting said about, you know, the reaction against globalization and neoliberalism, I mean, Trump represents in that sense kind of protectionism, a rise of protectionism, you know, bring, bring back manufacturing jobs, you know, reverse deindustrialization, um, you know, and that, that could stand to affect trade relations with a lot of the Asia-Pacific. Mm, so certainly something that's uh, in the cards there. Uh, Ting, uh, just throwing it back to you uh, and, and, and going back to, I guess, more of uh, the security question. One thing that Ross pointed out last week was that uh, regardless of whether Trump or Clinton had one this week, uh, the U.S. is likely over the next couple of years to be much more concerned with domestic issues, much more inward looking. Uh, and that could translate into, uh, you know, less less of an interest in Asian uh, regional politics, less of influence in Asian regional politics. If if that really does come to pass uh, and there is kind of this opening up of uh, uh, power, uh, something of a power vacuum in the region, what do you think that that means for Taiwan? I guess I tend to agree with what Ross is saying in terms of, you know, the U.S. looking more inward and trying to solve um, or trying to deal with some more domestic issues. Although um, my opinion is that um, every president, you know, every presidential candidate and election, you know, they always kind of say that, right? Like we spend too much money and we spend too much time abroad. We need to focus on nation building at home, right? That's like one of Obama's catchphrases because, you know, foreigners are not voting for the United States president. But what happens during the, the governing, you know, the, what happens during the administration is that something happens abroad that the United States, um, for better or for worse, is forced or is, um, has to respond in some way, right? Um, and as we mentioned previously, um, we could pretty much tell how a President uh, Hillary Clinton would respond to certain things, right? With President Donald Trump, um, I think at this point, just there's, it's anybody's guess, really, um, is there going to be a power vacuum in the Pacific? Um, I, 
I don't really know. Um, I don't really think that that's something that uh, President a President Trump could unilaterally decide and make happen. Um, it's going to be very difficult with a lot of people being very upset and trying to fight that, right? And so um, I think in you know at the very least there's going to be some sort of turmoil. And I think the you know the obvious answer would be that well China obviously looks like it would be poised to take over some sort of um, more of a hegemon role if there's a power vacuum. But, you know, I just, you know, it, I think it's just too early to tell. You know, Japan might um, you know, react in um, by militarizing. You know, South Korea could do the same. Um, you know, so I think um, I think it's just a little too early to tell right now. Mm-hmm. All right. So we heard a similar story from Michael O'Hanlon there. Too early to tell. Lots of uncertainty. Is that about where you're at, Brian? Uh, closing thoughts? Um, it's hard to say because, you know, the thing is that Trump's, <laughs> yeah, well, you, you know, nobody knows. It. Nobody knows. But, you know, Trump's appointments, uh, his planned appointments seem more conventional. Yet there's also the possibility of Trump just, you know, superseding them. I mean, during his campaign, for example, his campaign was afraid that he would just suddenly take to Twitter one day to declare his vice president pick. Uh, you know, during the last phases of the campaign, his campaign team took his phone away from him to prevent him from having any last minute tweets that would sink the campaign. Um, I mean, you know, what if Trump decides to tweet suddenly to Xi Jinping one day, um, just, you know, have a public declaration superseding everybody, um, even if he has no ability to kind of, you know, carry that out institutionally, you know, that might be taken as reality by various countries he addresses through social media. I mean, right. we live in a very strange age. <laughs> right. You, you, you can't control how they interpret the signals that he's exactly. shooting out. Well, I hope if he tweets, he does it on a secure phone. Otherwise, he'll be in a bit of trouble, wouldn't he? Mm, yeah, apparently. There's uh, lots of sn- <laughs> s- snoopers out there. Yeah. I wonder if he has a BlackBerry. I don't know, but I hope he has a secure phone when he tweets, because, of course, if he doesn't have a secure phone when he tweets, all those tweets will be considered insecure. Insecure tweeting. Yes. Email investigation. Tweet investigation. There we go. (laughs) The next national security controversy in the U.S. We called it right here, uh, but we're going to leave that topic for now. Uh, That is it for the first half. When we return, we are coming back to Taiwan with some labor politics, uh, marriage equality bills, partisan battling, Interesting stuff happening here, too, so we will get back to it when we return to Taiwan This Week. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around Taiwan. I'm Keith Menconi, joined by Gavin Phipps, Brian Hugh, and Che Ting Ye. Uh, let's start with an easy one, just because it's something we've covered so many times already. Uh, this week had some good news and some bad news for the KMT and their embattled bank accounts. Uh, We'll start with the good news. Uh, As we've said, the ill-gotten party assets settlement committee has frozen KMT bank accounts. Uh, The KMT has always said the move was illegal, and now it looks like a court agrees with them, Gavin. Yes, the Taipei High Administrative Court agreed with the KMT that the illegal assets committee's moves to freeze its bank accounts was illegal. However, the illegal assets committee shot back earlier this week and said, hey, look, although we've frozen the bank accounts, we're going to take further sanctions. We're going to make sure that the KMT cannot touch any of its bank Sinopac accounts and also ban the Taiwan Bank from actually cashing any of the checks. I believe there's nine checks the KMT have, and they're worth about 52 million NT apiece and basically the ill-gotten assets committee said if any banking institute or financial institute or individual for that matter moves to cash any of these checks they could be liable for up to five times I believe the amount on the check. 
Mm. All right. So was it five times or twice. It was a lot of money. A lot of money. It was a lot yeah. of money. Anyway, if, you know, you'd be if you cashed a check for fifty-two million NT, you'd owe a lot more than fifty-two million NT in fines. Mm-hmm. All right. So uh, good and bad news there for the KMT uh, this week. Uh, the KMT is now saying that uh, because of the frozen assets, that they're going to have to lay off staffers. Yeah. Um, so they they claim that you know they have to let go of about half their staff. Um, the issue is that you know they play this up as the DPP persecuting them, when of course they've always been so much larger than the DPP and have so much more resources that actually brings the parties closer to, you know, parity. So, you know, they'll play it up as an issue, but I don't think it, I think it means their normalization as a party. Mm. All right. Well, clearly, as we've said before so many times on the show, uh, the lens through which you see this issue has very much to do with the particular political (laughs) bent that you uh, have yourself, uh, the particular political bubble that you're in. Uh, So we can kind of just leave it at that. Uh, I think we've discussed it enough. All right, on to another unfolding drama, the controversial amendments to the Labor Standards Act. Poor little thing. That had a rough week, too. Uh, The week started with hunger strikes against the amendment from protesting labor activists. Uh, It continued with legislators deciding to send it back to the Legislative Review Committee. Uh, So a bit of a reversal there. And it ended with more people joining the hunger strike. Uh, I mean, that was after some people kind of jumped out of the hunger strike uh, and then more people jumped in. It's it's more like a hunger relay race than like an actual strike. But uh, Gavin, uh, let's start from the beginning of all this. When did that hunger strike begin? On November the 4th. This was was when seven members of the 2016 Workers' Struggle Against the President Labour Rights Group went on hunger strike outside the legislative UN in protest over the government moves to scrap sort of seven national holidays Mm. as part of a work week policy that it came up with as part of an amendment to the Labour Standards Act. Mm -hmm. Now, three of the original people that went on hunger strike stopped being on hunger strike on Tuesday after some 100 hours. Mm-hmm. Now, today, Friday, as we're recording this, three more labor union officials and one student are set to join the hunger strike this afternoon. But at this point, none of the original hunger strikers are still in the hunger strike. I think they flipped around a few times here. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so uh, spreading the burden, spreading the burden a little bit. But uh, that bill that they are protesting, uh, you know, obviously a big part of the protest is the fact that it was shoved through that original uh, original review committee with only one minute of review, not listening to uh, protesting voices. Uh, it was supposed to go to uh, inter-party caucus negotiations, cross-caucus negotiations, but now it's been sent back to committee, so a bit of a reversal there. It's been sent back to the committee. In fact, as we're recording this show, lawmakers are debating the bill. Mm. Hopefully debating it this time rather than throwing things at each other verbally and physically. It's a form of debate. It's a form <laughs> of debate. It is a form of debate. But, if, you know, if you're going to, you know, it's it's not like televised, really, is it? You know, if you want to televise a debate that gets like that, you might as well just watch Death Race 2000, the original version. <laughs> with what's his name? Um... Sylvester Stallone. We could replace Carradine, We I could believe. replace entire legislative committees with just viewing rooms for that movie. Could do. Could the original one, of course. I'm not talking about the remake. Mm, okay, so that's a that's a hot tip from Gavin right there. I'd he does. Ma- I'd like to make that very clear. <laughs> he does know these movies very well. Uh, but they are debating that, and basically they're this, debating this, that. This went back because finally the four parties: the NPP, the the People First Party, the DPP, and the KMT all got together in the middle of Thursday and said, OK, we better discuss this again. And they agreed. They came to it. They actually agreed on something. There should have been fireworks. Really, shouldn't they celebrate <laughs> that one? 
Incredible. Yeah, they agreed to send it back. Uh, so, I mean, it this does seem like a little bit of a chastening of the DPP. They seem pretty confident with this policy that it would be uh, embraced with open arms. Uh, of course, the promise of this all is a 40-hour work week, but the price uh, from Labor's perspective would be seven holidays a year, as uh, as we've said before in the show. Seven axed holidays a year. Seven axed holidays a year. And of course, what you have to remember is when you think, oh, they're taking away 12, they're taking away seven holidays from people. They're actually not taking away seven holidays from people at all because they're making it across the board the same with civil servants, the private sector and the public sector. All right. Yeah. So you see what I mean? Certainly, so, a, certainly a policy debate to be had right there. But, uh, Brian, it definitely seems like the DPP mm. has been uh, cowed by mm. these protesters uh, putting their place a little bit. Um, in the past, they went back, actually, during, you know, when the DPP, uh, when there, there was a hunger strike by workers struggle before. And during that hunger struggle, the DPP kind of backed away from its current plan and stated that, you know, oh, we'll reverse the cuts to public holidays. But then that was when business leaders demonstrated. So I think this time they probably won't really back down because, you know, they tried this tactic once before. Um, yet at the same time, there's still potential for a protest that may get the DPP to try and flip again. Because, you know, there was an attempt to occupy DPP headquarters twice last week um, by student activists um, on Tuesday and Wednesday. And, you know, during in late October, there was a spontaneous demonstration of 100 to 120 people, um, mostly students. That was just called on PTT randomly by uh, Wang Yikai, who is the guy who started the Apologize to China contest. So, 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 just to just to make sure I understand what you're saying here, you're saying that they may be sending the bill back to committee, but that's just that's more a reflection of they feel like their strategy to get it passed has failed, but they're still going to keep with the basic policy. I think so. I actually don't really see the DPP kind of like you know flip flopping in regards to just this hunger strike. Um, mm-hmm. I just think that you know it hasn't been reported on the news very much, so mm-hmm. you know I don't think it has that much effect currently. Remember, they only take away three and a half days holiday. Um, well, you know, Taiwanese workers already work, you know, like over 2,000 hours, so we can, we can debate that. <laughs> well, no, I mean, actually, we haven't really articulated the uh, the case that uh, these labor activists are making very well on the show uh, yet. So how about, I mean, you, you, you've spoken mm. to them. How about you articulate that case? Because uh, I think from the outside looking in, a lot of people would say, okay, you're getting a 40-hour work week. You're getting uh, a more secure weekend than you had before. Uh, if you sacrifice seven holidays a year uh, in that bargain What's the big deal? So what, why is this such a big deal to them? Um, I mean, you know, according to even the Ministry of Labor, Taiwan works like the fourth longest hours in the world. So out of, you know, 200 countries or so. So, you know, the fact is that with even further reductions that even, you know, of of seven holidays, that's that's just, you know, more work. So, you know, their justification is that, you know, Taiwan, Taiwanese workers are already overburdened. So, you know, this is also just the Thai administration kind of bowing to business interests. And, you know, this represents that it will act against business in the future and that, you know, exploitation of Taiwanese workers will continue. Um, student activism, though, is increasingly blending into labor activism. So that'll be something very interesting to watch in the future. Mm. Um, the Thai administration does stand to offend a lot of constituents with it. Because, you know, just waffling on this policy back and forth over and over again has made it into kind of a, a joke. So I think also yeah. there was another issue about the flexible day, remember? Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, while you're saying, okay, you've got a five-day work week and you've got one day off at the weekend, but one's mm-hmm. flexible. Well, why is it flexible? And if it's flexible, it shouldn't be flexible at all. You work five days. If you have to work Saturday and Sunday, you get triple pay, lot of money and other benefits. Right. It would be very simple for the government just to say that. So there's like one day... 
you get two days off a week. One of them, you get a certain fixed amount of time in compensation, extra time in compensation if you have to work it. The other day, you get a little bit less if yeah, you're forced yeah, to work is, it. Which is a bit odd, if you see what I mean. You thought it would be, it would be across the, again, across the board. If they want to make the holidays right. across the board, they should make the overtime pay and perks across the board. Right, so, and as Brian has pointed out before, having that flex today flexi day was seen as kind of a concession already so to uh, a concession to uh, industry and business leaders already so to put the seven days nixing holidays da 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 on top of that uh some people see that as another black guy um of course there there is concern that the flexible day could be open to abuse by mm-hmm. companies basically yeah mm-hmm. little little, little work around that issue multiple mm-hmm. times you know two rest two days off or one flexible day and one rest day the time issue flipped on that multiple times, so people are not happy. I mean, just to just to throw in my two cents on this, it it seems to me that this much focus on the policy and the 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 letter of the law kind of misses the point in Taiwan. Because I mean, my sense is that at many businesses, if your boss asks you to work longer, you work longer, and you don't necessarily get those hours anyway. I mean, I, I think that there's a lot of businesses that don't function in a way where people are really recording all the hours that they're working. Um, so, I mean, isn't, is, isn't a change in attitude and a change in culture going to be, at the end of the day, really more important than any law that gets passed? Um, I think that's definitely true. I just think that, you know, if pushing for this to be in law sets more of a precedent for, you know, pushing against kind of the present war culture, I think that's a lot of what a lot of union groups are hoping for. Mm. And, you know, there's other things people can do, such as, you know, organizing the workplace to kind of push back against this. But, you know, that's another challenge. Mm. Ting, anything you want to add in there? No, I, I would just like to echo the point that... Um, you know, sometimes we would like, you know, the, the culture to change versus, you know, having the, the statute change, right? But then a lot of times the statute changing is a signal to the society that, okay, guys, like time to, you know, the, the culture is now changing. Taiwan would need to move away from, you know, sort of uh, heavy labor-intensive manufacturing for export in order to, you know, for people to think, yes, like, Flex days are okay, you know, not working in the office is okay. You know, all the, all those things that people associate with, you know, sort of more of a 21st century working culture, right? Yet, um, before that happens, if the law were to change ahead of those things, that would do, um, that would be some good to, that would do some good to change the culture in that direction. All right. Well, uh, all of us working stiffs are looking forward to that, uh, of course, or at least some policy that addresses more of the concerns that are out there. But uh, we're going to move on to our third story for the second half. And, uh, well, if there's one place in this part of the world that has bigger things to think about than the U.S. presidential election, that place is definitely Hong Kong. Of course, China's National People's Congress gave an interpretation of Hong Kong's basic law earlier this week that, in effect bans two pro-independence lawmakers from taking their oaths of office. The move sparked protests uh, in Hong Kong, uh, basically questioning China's commitment to the one country, two systems pledge that they made. Uh, You know, basically, uh, when the handover occurred, uh, as uh, I think most people know, Beijing promised some degree of autonomy for Hong Kong. And so if Beijing is going in micromanaging and deciding who gets to be a lawmaker and who doesn't based on comments that they have made, and we can get to those comments in a second because they were rather inflammatory. But nevertheless, if uh, Beijing is making that call, then it sort of undermines that autonomy. Uh, Well, it's a drama that has caught the attention of the whole world, and uh, Taiwan is, of course, watching as well because you know that 
one country, two systems sort of arrangement is one possible formulation that uh, has been floated for Taiwan and China to, I guess the word you would use is unify. So many here feel that uh, the experience of Hong Kong has profound implications for uh, what Taiwan-China relations could hold. The DPP seems to think so as well. They've actually uh, taken sides in this case. Uh, the Democratic Progressive Party caucus earlier this week pledged to support the pro-independence Hong Kong lawmakers. That would be the DPP caucus chief executive, Wu Ping Rei, who had an interesting quote. He said uh, the swearing-in controversy exposed as a lie. China's promise that Hong Kong would have a high degree of autonomy and judicial independence for 50 years under the one country, two systems policies. So... Those concerns are really uh, very present in the mind of DPP lawmakers. Uh, Brian, I was wondering if you could march us back to the beginning for folks that have not been following this. Tell us about those two lawmakers that have uh, been making these protests. Mm-hmm. And the two lawmakers. Well, future lawmakers. Future lawmakers. Potentially. Um, Liang and Yao Waiting. Um, they're both from the party Youngspiration, which is one of the localist groups that rose after the Umbrella Movement. Is there a um, Chinese name for that? Uh, Xingzheng or something like that. Okay, so they yeah. just st- stuffed together young and inspiration. A lot of these groups have really, really strange names. Like, you know, Joshua's group is called Demasisto with, with uh, one of those, like, line accents above it. You know, nobody knows how to pronounce it. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> lots of odd names there. Well, There's I mean, even also a Democratic Progressive Party of Hong Kong, which is just mm. like a fan group of the DPP in Taiwan. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. All right. Uh, so these two characters? Um, yeah, so I mean, they they previously called for pro-independence views, which is something that was previously an unheard of position before the Umbrella Movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, that, you know, riles up, up China. Also, by Hong Kong law, you know, separatism is illegal um, for lawmakers. They have to take, a, you know, an oath of, you know, pledging loyalty to Hong Kong and China. Mm-hmm. And so the issue is that, you know, they didn't, they didn't do it. There's the rub. There's exactly. the rub. Um, actually, before this, there was one lawmaker um, or one one candidate for running for office, uh, Edward Young, who was banned from running because of his political views. Mm. These two were allowed through, but now because of uh, of their refusal to go through with this oath, you know, their their pro independence views has become another issue as to whether they will be allowed into office. Now, this is a couple of weeks ago, but it's worth repeating when they were supposed to take the oath, uh, they didn't use the standard oath uh, ver- wordage that they were supposed to. I mean, what's particularly controversial is, you know, the use of profanity and referring to China as China, which was interpreted as a derogatory comment. Which they made during their oath. Yeah. Apparently, um, apparently, they, apparently Beijing now says there's 15 other lawmakers that were democratically elected cannot also take office for basically the same reasons. Well, mm. they've expanded this. Yeah, 15. Mm. To, the, the original two plus another 15. Mm. There's 17 lawmakers in Hong Kong now that might not be able to take office. All right. So uh, definitely uh, a dramatic turn of events uh, right there. Uh, OK, so that's that's all just to give a sense of what's happening in Hong Kong. Clearly, a lot of people are very angry about this uh, within Hong Kong. There has been demonstrations. Uh, but how do you interpret the DPP weighing in on this? Does that surprise you at all or, or does that just uh, seem like about what we should have expected? Um, it's funny because, you know, this comes at a time when the DPP really can't push for independence for Taiwan, like, you know, Taiwanese independence because of, you know, now it's They're the in power, so, you know, it's exactly. much more sensitive. Exactly. So, you know, in this way, Hong Kong can serve as an easy proxy for for members of the DPP to kind of express pro-independence views. Mm. Um, and so, you know, it's it's not surprising. I mean, that's another way of also just riling up the KMT, which is, you know, been silent on the matter, but probably is also in some way offended because of its Chinese nationalism. Um mm. But we'll see. I mean, you know, I mean, China's antsy about separatism everywhere. Um, Hong Kong and Taiwan actually linking up in some form is actually kind of difficult. 
also just you know China also has this notion of just all these separatist forces collaborating with China's enemies such as the U.S. and there's being this conspiracy to undermine all of China. Mm. Um, I mean that seems kind of unrealistic, but it, it makes a it makes a way for the DPP to kind of score points. Of course, there was a time when DPP lawmakers were technically banned from taking their seats in the legislature after they took their oath with their backs to the ROC flag. Right, so Taiwan has its own history with this in addition. That that was all sorted out, Mm -hmm. if you see what I mean. But, you know, it's the same type of issue. Well, I mean, those those symbolism issues are still alive and well uh, in in Taiwan today. Uh, You know, whether this anthem has a reference to the party rather than the country or, you know, whether you identify with the ROC or Taiwan, uh, you know, these sorts of issues are, are alive and well. Uh, everywhere. Uh, I, I, I think uh, the question that I kind of want to look at this uh, through the lens of, though, is, is is it really the case that uh, many people in Taiwan are paying close attention to this and using the Hong Kong case uh, as, uh, you know, a real test case for what it would mean to have closer ties with China? And, and what are they taking away from this? Uh, do you, Brian, do you think that a lot of people are looking closely at this? Um I suppose so, but I also think that, you know, it's like, it's, you know, I think once this country two system has been dead for such a long time, like, you know, like we previously had the booksellers disappearing and all sorts of other incidents from the past, like, you know, this doesn't really prove anything new to Taiwanese people or, you know, anyone anywhere else, just that it's the latest incident in, you know, Hong Kong's freedoms declining. Mm. Um, yeah. I mean, there's like a precedent for, you know, this kind of protest in Hong Kong, just usually the lawmaker eventually is allowed to eventually do the swearing in. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's what happened. It didn't happen this time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ting, do you see the same thing? Basically, Taiwan has already made up its mind, so this is just uh, one other way for the DPP to kind of score easy points? Yes, but I also would say that definitely in recent years, there is more of a tightening of the screws from Beijing on Hong Kong, right? And then there's also a, a rapidly growing um, sentiment of Hong Kongers, of a, you know their independent identity and um, the sense of that they want to be separate from China and rule themselves, right? Um, whether that's in the form of some sort of a city-state theory, whether that's a you know just outright independent nation or city-state, uh, nation-state of some sort, uh, you know, I think this particular the news item that we're talking about today, you know, yeah, sure we can say it's an easy point um, for the DPP to score, um, but I do think that there are um, questions that's you know on the horizon of how the Taiwanese government um, should deal with, uh, you know, these sentiments and these trends happening in Hong Kong, right? Um, you know, this is something from the, at the party level, of course, you know, the DPP um, as a party can react to things differently than the, you know, the official um, state, the official government of Taiwan, right? But then the DPP is the ruling party. So, you know, going forward, you know, how, much support or in what form or you know how what kind of interaction does uh, the taiwanese government as a, as a whole um have with hong kong and i think that's something um that we can uh that we can watch for all right so uh certainly a lot of issues that this raises for taiwan uh gavin just to kind of wrap this thing up in a bow uh there is still some question about the fate of these uh, embattled lawmakers and whether or not they will take their seats in, you know, the lawmaking body. Yeah, apparently, according to uh, Andrew Dembina, who is a Hong Kong journalist, 
LegCo is remains divided over whether to allow them to take their seats at all, with the pro-Beijing cliques saying nay, and the more democratic lawmakers saying yay. So they will. Uh, Beijing made this ruling, but they will get the final say. It's still up in the air. We don't. Mm-hmm. Nobody really knows yet on that one. But LegCo is divided over it. All right. Well, we could make a, a giant mountain of things that we don't know today. Uh, but let's move to something that we do know. We do know that same-sex marriage in Taiwan took a little tiny baby step forward this week to draft amendments to Taiwan civil code uh, that are aimed at legalization. Passed their first reading at the Legislative Year on Tuesday. And uh, just to kind of revisit this topic, it's something we've talked about before, but these amendments would be uh, aimed squarely at legalizing same-sex marriage and allowing married gay couples to adopt children. Uh, Gavin, what else should we know about this this week? That started on Monday of this week, Keith, when parents of LGBT sons and daughters rallied in support of same-sex marriage outside of the legislative UN. Mm. And they called on lawmakers to ratify legalisation of same-sex marriage sooner rather than later, saying that such a move would ensure full marriage equality and protect families. Mm. Now, on Tuesday, the day after this, two draft amendments to the Civil Code aimed at legalising same-sex marriage passed their first readings in the legislature. Of course, one was a DPP proposal, the other was a KMT proposal. A third draft amendment to the Civil Code proposed by the New Power Party was returned to the Procedural Committee on November the 1st by the KMT caucus, and that amendment is now <coughs> unlikely to clear a first reading until next week at the earliest. But so, how many, how many so versions by, do you really need? Well, so it's, by mid-next week, there mm-hmm. could be three versions of this draft amendment to the Civil Code put forward. Now, of course, we've said this before, they're basically the same. They want to legalise same-sex marriage and allow married gay couples to adopt children mm-hmm. and basically make it across the board same for everybody. Mm-hmm. But the what divides these different amendments is the wording, of course, mm-hmm. of how they're going to divide up man, wife, couple spousal wording it's mm-hmm. it's wording i don't have the wording in front of me but it's it's basically they all agree but the way that they agree in the wording of the new law is how they disagree right if uh, that makes any sense at all and uh if uh, you have any legal background you can pour over this and scratch your head uh, but i think the important point to make is that pro gay rights activists uh, advocates came out earlier this week uh, saying that both the KMT and the DPP versions would be acceptable. Uh, so, you know, uh, definitely for advocates of this policy, uh, a step forward no matter how you look at it. Uh, Brian, uh, I mean, are we are we really looking at uh, some kind of marriage equality going into effect in the near future? Um, I mean, it's been reported on that in the media. Um, a lot of people are looking forward to it. Uh, it does seem that, you know... International headlines. That's Taiwan right. Taiwan to become the first country in Asia to legalize same-sex marriage. And as this week demonstrates, the international media never gets anything wrong in terms of its predictions. <laughs> <sighs> but anyway, yes, so you're yeah, saying that that's yeah, yeah. where the expectations lie. It seems to be. I mean, you know, the DPP originally actually wasn't committed to marriage equality. It was committed to, you know, civil partnerships. So there was a kind of chain of course there. You know, right. the KMT, which is, you know, historically has some very, very homophobic elements, now has elements that, you know, push for, you know, gay marriage. And, you mm-hmm. know, you had, like, Jiang Wan'an show up at, like, events in the past and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are some elements. I mean, it does seem kind of set, but, you know, it will it will take some work, and some of this is also a product of political opportunism by all parties involved. 
And it's kind of interesting uh, what Gavin was talking about there earlier with the parents of LGBT uh, community members coming out earlier this week and demonstrating. Uh, obviously, one of the key issues here is whether or not uh, a gay couple would be able to adopt children. And that's really a lot of what the parents were talking about, is we want our gay sons and daughters to be able to adopt children so that we can become, you know, uh, live live the dream, become grandparents. Uh, so that's obviously a big motivating issue as well. All right, and we're going to round out that topic right there and move on to our bonus podcast story to end the show. Uh, all right, Gavin, that's a bit of a rousing number that we have playing behind us uh, right now. What is that? That's the Republic of China Military Academy song, the official song, which has been in, been sung by soldiers at the ROC Military Academy since it was established in Guangzhou by the Kuomintang in 1924. Mm, now, venerable. Yeah, it is a venerable song, in fact, but there's controversy surrounding the song now after DPP lawmaker Liu Shifeng this week called on the Defence Ministry to change the words from party flag flying to national flag flying. Mm. The DPP lawmaker made the point that he, he didn't want to sort of he wanted to make it clear that the lines between party and state were separate because of course it was the military academy was established by the Guomindang and the flag they are talking about the party flag flying is of course the Guomindang the ROC flag which of course is technically the KMT flag the nationalist mm-hmm. chinese flag and that, at issue here is the opening line of the song. Mm-hmm. Our party's flags below above the raging ocean. Okay, and let's uh, just so our, our listeners know exactly what that is, let's play that for them right here. Yeah, the rest of the song goes, This Wampo lives for revolution. The Wampo being the name of the original ROC Military Academy. Mm-hmm. Our belief must put to practice. Our discipline must not be lax. We are ready to be the vanguards of revolution. We fight our way with blood to guide the oppressed people. We hold their hands making headway. The way is not long and don't be afraid. Sticking to camaraderie and sincerity. We carry out the spirit of Wampur. We carry out the spirit of this academy. We, we, we just got our, our first live performance from Gavin I'm Phipps not, on the show. I'm not singing it at all. You were slam poetrying it. <laughs> okay, I'm slam poetrying it. Yeah, okay, whatever Spoken that is. word. There, there we go, there we go. Uh, but of course, while the, while the MND, the Ministry of National Defence, has said it will assess whether to change the first couple of words of this song... But it did come under some heavy fire. Some people are defending. No no, 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 pun intended there for some retired generals, one of whom has been quoted as saying that the move to change the words would be similar to moving to change the clan name of an ancestral shrine. Hmm. And we all know that you can't change the clan name of an ancestral shrine. No. You're Menconi. My Phipps. He's Huey. And that is how it is. My shrine will forever say Menconi <laughs> on it. Uh, okay, okay, I probably shouldn't be mocking this. Not quite kosher. Uh, but, uh, 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 Brian, uh, 
You're not an ROC citizen, are you? No, I'm not actually. So you've never had to Dung Bing? Uh, no, I haven't. Oh, when I was a kid, I had the passport and so forth, but you know, like I don't have it now. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the national anthem has the words "Your Party" in it, and Sai sang that during her inauguration. She did but, sing that. Yeah, she did sing that. So um, a lot of these, you know, institutions are still around. Um, that's that's also why the KMT is freaking out about desinization, though. It's like a terror of the culture wars against it or whatever. But it's yeah, it's interesting when desinization also means dekmtization. Exactly. When KMT <laughs> equates to sinization, it all it all gets mumbled mumbled together, tangled up in a big uh, knot. Uh, Ting, uh, what are your feelings on the matter? Um, I mean, we've talked about similar issues in the past, right? So with the whole Sun Yat-sen portrait, um, you know, I, I think these things are you know going to pop up here and there. I personally think that yeah, go ahead and should change them. Um, the people that, if the, if the best argument that the people are, who are against the change are saying, you know, you keep, because it's always been the way it is, well, you know, that's not a very good reason not to change anything, right? So. Mm. All right. Well, uh, the battle lines are drawn on this issue. Uh, I think we know where everybody stands on it, but it's just another one of those culture war type things, symbolism type things that uh, will probably drag on for quite a bit of time as, uh, we all figure out exactly what direction we are going in. But uh, on that somber note, uh, and with this rousing song, we are going to march our way off onto the end of the show. Uh, we'll have to end it there. Please do join us again next time. Time with this week broadcast every Friday evening during the 8 p.m. hour right here on ICRT FM 100, around about 8.15 p.m. You can also find an extended version of the show online at the ICRT website and iTunes and just a couple of other random places round about the internet. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I am Keith Manconi, joined by Gavin Phipps. Hey, good night. Tearing up from his patriotic pride hearing this song. Hey, maybe we'll next go to a KTV. I'll sing that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, we can uh, expect the entire block to clear out immediately if we march on over there. Also joined by Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And Che Ting Ye. Oh, pleasure as always. Thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100. Ting, do you have anything to add there? Uh, no. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, Gavin, do you have anything? Uh, do we have anything else to go over with this one? Nope. Nope. Okay. <laughs>